0: The last verse. I'd like to thank, I'd like to untie this. Thank uh, Greg for your thoughts. Um, a couple of years ago, he and I shared a class together on the Book of Psalms, and the one class I really remember is and was um, praying through Psalms. And if you missed that class, you missed a good one. Um, he shared how in reading a psalm and then writing out the prayer, the value of that, and uh, his his prayers are often poetic. And there's a place for that. There's a place for spontaneous prayers, of, cor- of course, but the, the thought-out prayers will do us all a great deal of good if we reflect on the Scriptures and write out a prayer that reflects that Scripture. And so I just the uh, thought behind that, thank you, Greg, for, for sharing that with us. We're looking at this little book, little letter, 1 John. And as I continue to study it, the more I study it, the more I'm dazzled at its depth. The scope of the gospel, the good news, the enti- which is the entire message of the Bible. When I was young, I thought the Old Testament was just a little bit of history. But it's really the gospel it's talking about the gospel from the beginning to the end. And I believe that the entire Bible is summed up in this little book of First John, this little letter. It's only around 2,100 words. It's not long at all. You can memorize it if you really desire. It would take you a little while, but it wouldn't take you that long. It's written in simple language where we could spend a lifetime thinking about the, the message Meditating on it. And one reason I think is we find in this letter, the concepts of this letter, the sentences are all linked back to the, the whole of the Bible. Now, many of the phrases, if you've, if you've read the Gospel of John, then you read John, first John, you'll see a lot of the phrases are almost identical. And a lot of the commentators will... will I still have the sin tied up. Sorry about that. A lot of the commentators will show the the link between the gospel and, and the letter of 1 John. But he alludes back to Genesis. He goes all the way back to Genesis. Uh, he talks about the source of our sin problem. He talks about sin in our, uh, in, um, in our lives. God's solution. He talks about the life and death of Jesus. He talks about... He links it back to the book of Leviticus, uh, Deuteronomy, uh, where the, the um, Ark of the Covenant is, and the, uh, the, the Day of Atonement. He brings it all the way forth throughout the New Testament in the practical working out of our Christian lives. The midst of our current struggle with sin. I mean, John is so honest. He talks about your current struggle with sin. And he tells you how God deals with that. And so in our last lesson, we looked at chapter 3, verse 23. And I want to touch on that because, of course, these link together. Verse 24 obviously links to verse 23. And I want to step back and look at that. And I I want to read a quote from an author on this verse. And I want to warn you before we begin that part of it is a bit scholarly. The wording's a bit scholarly. And so don't turn your minds off. Just listen. And I'm going to explain some of the the uh, concepts and a couple of the theological words. But there's a beauty, just like the, there was a beauty in the words that Greg prayed to us and that he read to us out of this poem. You know, we, we often say, well, that's old-fashioned and that's Shakespearean words and la-da-da, we just kind of toss it out. But we need to often think slowly on some of the things we, that are beautifully written and meditate on those, and it will help us understand God's Word even better. So as I read this, uh, just hang in here with me for a minute, and you'll see the beauty of this in a moment. He says, well, I want to do this first. I want to read the verse first. First John chapter three, verse twenty three, remind us what we're talking about. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he as he has commanded us. We've read through that over and over. And we don't sometimes we don't see what that is saying. Let me let me read this quote. He says, First John three twenty three might serve very well. As the New Testament sentence that best expresses the essence of Christianity, I stopped right there and I opened up my Bible and went back to 1 John 3.23 and I just read it over and over thinking the essence of Christianity right here. He continues, the theology that underlines it makes clear that faith in Jesus is really a faith in God whose son he is. That Christian life begins with a vertical action by this God in sending his son. That what we do comes after what God has done. And that our love is a horizontal but essential continuation of the vertical love that God has shown. This is where it gets a little heavy. In its own way, it refutes a dogmatic conservatism which makes creedal orthodoxy the only criterion. A fideism in which giving of oneself to Jesus is all that matters. And a liberalism which defines Christianity simply as a way to live. And it does all this in a pedagogical order where, whereby, through faith, we learn about love. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you with those $5 words here. <laughs> and I quote this, and I, I, I honestly hesitate. I thought, ah, oh, that's a little heavy, you know. But I I want you to learn to think if you're not thinking. (laughs) Because this is valuable stuff here. And I'm talking about the scripture, not this quote. But it ties beautifully into verse 24, which we'll see in a minute. He divides his thoughts into two parts. Part of this verse promotes something, upholds something. And part of this verse refutes certain things. And that's what he's saying. He's simply saying this. 1 John 3.23 sums up what it means to be and live as a Christian better than any other verse in the New Testament. This sums up Christianity better than any other verse in the New Testament. That, if, if, you, if you, even if you doubt that, it should cause you to read it again. And this is his command. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded us. Sums up Christianity better than any other verse in the New Testament. How? By what it upholds and what it promotes and what it refutes. First of all, the verse shows that faith in Jesus means faith in God. That this life begins with God's initiative. In sending his son. That's what he's talking about, this vertical action. Christianity begins with what God has done in sending his son. Then, what we do, the horizontal action follows what God has done, and our love for others is simply an extension of his love for us. We can put it this way God's grace, our faith. God's love, our love. God's work, our response. And that's the whole New Testament. In fact, that's the whole Bible. God has done something. And that's far greater than we can. We can't even come close to what he's done. But he has done something and we respond to it. And then secondly, this verse refutes several extremes that we're tempted to adopt. Or we're tempted to drift into depending on our personal leanings. You know, there's a, there's a tendency to respond to God religiously. And then you, and the I don't know, what in the world am I, how did I do this? Sorry. That's the third time. All right. All right. Tendence, there's a tendency to respond to God religiously. And we read the Gospels and we say, oh, those Pharisees, those Sadducees, oh, you know, look at them. Look look at what they've done. Look how they responded. I never do that while we do it. I remember hearing a preacher talk about Pharisees, And he went through the whole thing about Pharisees. And I forget what, where he was in, in the Gospels. And as he did that, I'm thinking, man, he's talking to us. He's talking to us. He, and when he applied it, he didn't apply it to us. He applied it generically. And I'm like, wow, the whole time I thought he was going to, because he is. We respond religiously to God's grace often. And so he, he, this writer calls it dogmatic conservatism. This is where it's going to touch us. It's taking a creed, both written and endorsed by denominations, or a particular denomination, or an unwritten creed, which most churches that don't have a written creed have. All right. You touched it, didn't I, Lauren? He said, ooh. We have unwritten creeds. And we say, this is our standard of orthodoxy. This is... This is, if you're in my box here, if you're, if you're here, you're saved. And if you're out, you're condemned. And we find ourselves very comfortable when we're around our own, our own kind. We're comfortable in our group. We're comfortable in our box. We're comfortable in our clique. When people don't use the same religious phrases I use, then they're suspect. We say, hmm, I don't know if they're, you know, if they're right or not. You know, you'll hear a preacher, and pre- pre- you know, I, I know most of you don't do this, but you get together with a bunch of preachers, and they're all using the same kind of language. And if you don't use that same kind of language, there's a big question mark over your head. The same phraseology and so on. The way you dress. The way you act. The, all the little do's and don'ts. That's our box. Are you going to live in those do's and don'ts? I don't know what in the world I'm doing. Sorry. Uh, it's, it's this thing. All right, all right. I'm getting some help. Good. Now, this is not orthodox. I, I Some suspect, you know, a little suspect there. All right. He didn't mess with me, did he? <laughs> all right. Thank you. Really, thanks. Because I that, that just kept circling around there. So, you know, he says, if you understand the Scripture... It's going to it's going to push you away from this box mentality of you know, of orthodoxy that th- this is this is what's right and everything else is wrong. Extreme dogmatic conservatism, and then he uses this other word and it's the opposite, fideism, and that's a that's a, a philosoph- beginning it was a philosophical and a theological word, but it really just means this faith without reason. You know people who do this. They have faith without reason. I believe because I, because I feel like I should. My faith is in Jesus without thinking. It's a blind faith. I just, I just have nothing else to do, so I just believe in Jesus. Okay, that's what, all that matters. I gave my life to Jesus. Now I don't have to think of what I do. Everything's okay. I became a Christian. God will save me because I believe. And it's based largely on our feelings. This verse refutes that. Third, it refutes liberalism, which means you just deny the historicity of the Bible, that Jesus never was real. He was never, perhaps he was never real. It's neither here nor there, whether he was uh, God in the flesh. What really matters is you just need to learn to live a good life. It doesn't matter if you think the Bible is inspired or the Bible's not inspired. It doesn't matter. The Bible's a good guidebook, but it's not God's word. And then he says, He lays this all out in a pedagogical order. In other words, it's a body of instruction, just some teaching here. Where it is through faith and all the meaning behind that, we learn about love. Let me see if I can, I like to paraphrase, paraphrase it this this way. It sums up Christianity. This is what God desires and calls us to. Place your trust in the entirety of who Jesus is, how he lived what he taught and translate that into your life in learning to love one another. That's Christianity. If you want to just distill it down to its essence, that's what it's all about. This is what God desires. This is what God calls us to trust in my son who I sent and look at his life. Look at what he taught and translate that into your life. How you love one another. That's it in a nutshell. That's what it means to be a Christian. And when we grasp that, those extremes of this is my box and you're, you're not in my box, so I don't know about you. If you grasp what God has done for you in his love, you will learn to love those people that you don't agree with. You'll learn to love those people that you're not so sure about. You'll stop judging them. And you'll start loving them. And you let God do the judging. That's what he's saying. And it's a beautiful verse. And then he just begins to expand on that. Look at verse 24. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. This is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. You know, if you ever. Preach. You come to verses like this, and you want to kind of skip over them because you're like, well, what in the world is, is that all about? Especially that last part. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. It causes you to think and study and meditate and search it out and do your best. And that's one reason I like to preach through a book. It causes me to deal with scriptures I wouldn't normally deal with. But what is this talking about? This is talking about the relational aspect of life in God. And what I mean by that is just our relationship with God. He says here, one of, the, one of the key words in 1 John and in his gospel is this word, live. In the NIV, it's live. In some of your Bible, it says abide. All right? as a key word. It's used over and over. Different translations translate it different ways because they're trying to get this concept. It's really a hard concept to get in a single word. It's used twice in this verse, as you can see here. Uh, it's used 24 times in this letter. Twenty-four times John uses this. We've already talked about this, but most of us have forgotten that we've talked about it. We can't remember what the word means. It just kind of goes out of our mind after a while. This is the 17th and 18th time that it's used in this letter. I've already dealt with this 16 times. I'm going to deal with another, do your math, six times. I think John is trying to make a point here. He keeps saying it over and over. And what this this word means, when you come to this word live or abide, it means this is where you reside. This is permanent residence. It means to stay in the same place. It's your lodging. It's your fixed, permanent state. It's your house. It's your abode. That's the old English. I'm going to my abode. We don't use that word anymore, but it means my house. And what's so great about this, there is a mutual residing. He says, you live in him. This is your permanent home. He lives in you. It's, it's his permanent place. It's not that we are in his presence, but we're in him. God doesn't come and go. He lives in you. And the best illustration I can think of is air. We walk around in air. We're in the air, and the air is in us. We breathe in the air. It's in us, but it's around us at the same time. And it's bigger than us. The atmosphere is far bigger than than we can even really imagine. But it encompasses us. It resides in us. And so this intimate relationship that we have with God, if if we understand it, it destroys this superficial Christianity. I put quotes around that. It destroys this idea that, you know, I go to church, I'm going to take communion because that's the most important thing we do every Sunday, and then God's going to be okay with me. You cannot understand that God lives in you and think, ah, just a cracker and juice, and I'm out of here. And I think most of us don't think that way, but there are some that do. You know, I just got to get there and take communion, and everything's going to be Okay. That's superficial. It destroys the false idol that my life is my own and I can do what I please. If I'm walking in God and God is in me, that that idol of myself goes away. It destroys that shallow faith that says, you know, I believe in Jesus. Or we we often say, well, I got baptized. Well, I got baptized, as if that moment of that that's all you had to do. Just kind of get the, the 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 your stamp, you know, and your Book of life card or whatever you have. You know, get that. You know, I got baptized. Yeah, but how are you living? Do you live as if God lives in you? Or are you just having the, you know, I've known people. say, I got a I look on my wall. I got a baptismal certificate. We don't do that anymore. But, you know, have my. That's it. That's the proof of my salvation. And that's not the proof of our salvation. We sing songs Come into your presence. I understand that. But the idea is we come into the building, into the presence of God. And then we leave the building. In some way, we're quasi in the presence of God. I mean, we know he's there, but he's not really there. You're not like he was not the church building, right? That's the, that's the thought process we have. And if we understand that I am my abode, my house is in God. And God's house is in me. Then this, this, this superficial stuff goes away. This is a walk with God, a life with God, in which he never leaves you and you never leave him. So when you're tempted to fuss and fight on the way to church, church, just remember God sitting there in the car with you. Not beside you, but in you. And the person you're fussing at, God's in them too. You have to remember those things. Changes your life. That's why we see the whole, our whole life changes when we begin to understand who God is. I think the psalmist came close to, close to this. He saw this in Prospect, and there's a beautiful psalm, Psalms 139. He still has this idea that God is, is there, but, in, the, but in, in his day and time, God was, God was over there on the hill. God was at the mountain. God was where the, where the altar was. That's where God was. And he wasn't down in the valley where you did your work, you know, when you plowed the gardens and all that. He wasn't, you know, he, you could look up to the hills and you could see where the idol was. You could see where the altar was. And that's where God was. But he got close to this. He said, let, let's just read the first 12 verses of Psalms 129. And, and it's a beautiful psalm. Listen. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. I think he began to understand God is right here. I think was with with David, he he was thinking of God is right here. And Jesus brings that further and he says, now, he's not only right here, he's right in there with you. That's where he is. He's even closer than than what David was describing. And all this, as we look at it, is for those who obey his commands. Let's uh, let's look at the verse again. And this is his uh, excuse me. Those who obey his commands live in him, and he he, and, and he in them. Immediately, I know what many of you think. You sit there and say, "Okay, now I've got to obey his commands." And we turn this on its head quickly. We make it a legalistic requirement. I have to obey his commands. I have to search them out. I've got to make sure I don't do anything wrong. Am I giving enough? Am I going to church enough? Am I kind enough? Am I patient enough? Am I doing this properly? Am I doing that properly? Don't we do that? Don't we think that way? We say, okay, i obey his commands. If I obey his commands, then I'm living in him. So if I'm not obeying his commands, I'm not living in him. So therefore, what are all the commands? And we start making a list, and, and suddenly that dogmatic conservatism, we have it there. This is my box. Here it is. There, I present my gift to you, God, it's my box of orthodoxy, and I live in it comfortably. That's not what he's saying at all. This word, is it becomes me-centered again. Me-centered instead of God-centered. This whole book, this whole letter is about God, not about me. This word, obey, is better translated keep. But the word keep, we lose our meaning. But it's lost its meaning. Uh, the, the word means... To guard, to protect, to value, to hold on to. It's what you treasure. This is what you treasure. That's what it means. And last week we saw, what, what is your desire? Do you, do you remember from a week ago if you were here? What, what is your desire? Ask whatever you want, whatever you desire. What do you desire? What do you really desire? All right, no one was listening. I'll, tell, I'll remind you. <laughs> Faith and love. There you go. You get an eight. Faith and love. That's what you really desire. That's what you really want. That's what you really treasure. Those who treasure a growing faith in Christ. Those who treasure whose desire is to love and to grow in love. Those who hold fast to their faith and they guard their faith. Those are the ones who live in God. And God lives in them. This is not talking about legalistic, perfect obedience. What do you treasure? What do you desire? Don't you desire? Don't you want your faith to grow? Of course you do. Don't you want to learn how to love? You look at someone else and say, man, I wish I could love people like that person loves people. That's your desire. That's what you want. And so as we want that, as we desire that, that's God's command. Faith and love. And this is simply an extension of what we've already read. Chapter two, verse uh, three through six. He's already touched on this. He's already talked about this. And now he he just expands on it in chapter uh, three. Let me read verses uh, three through six of um, chapter two. He says, we know that we have come to know him if, listen, we obey, keep his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are, are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. I'm not going to preach a sermon on that. I already did. Uh, maybe three or four. I don't even remember. But you look at that, and now he's expanding. And I, I have this little illustration. This is, this is John's style of writing. He'll talk about something, and then he expands on it. And he expands on He keeps on expanding, like the ripples coming in, in water. And so in chapter 3, he's already touched on these things, and so now he expands. The concept of keeping his commands is tied to, know, to knowing God. We know God through this experience of holding fast to his word, treasuring what is, he says, guarding his commands. You know, as we, this is how you get to know God, because you look at his word, and you look at the word, which is Jesus, through his word, and you treasure it. You love it. You desire it. You hang on to it. And the result is God's love coming to maturity in our lives as we abide in him. Chapter 2, verse 5 says this. This is how we know we are in him. And that parallel in 324, this is how we know he lives in us. It's, It's saying the same thing in two different ways, slightly different ways. One is this is how we know we are in him. And this is how we know he lives in us. But it's basically the same thing. He in us, us in him. How do we do that? How do we, how do we know it? We know How we know we are in him is seen, first of all, by the way we live. That's what he says in verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. We know we are in him by the, and it's seen in the way we live. As we live, as Jesus lived, we can say, I know I am in him. And how do we know he is in us? We know that he lives in us it is seen by the spirit's activity in our lives. Now we're going to talk about the spirit in the, in the next six verses in chapter 4, but i let me touch on it here. This is not talking about a subjective feeling of the spirit. I hear I hear people, I hear Christians say things like I feel the spirit's leading. All right, I'm not making fun or okay or anything like that. But I hear this word, I feel the Spirit's leading. I feel this was the right thing to do. This verse has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with getting a feeling and following the feeling and saying it's the Spirit leading. God gave us His Spirit to produce His fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. He wants the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. It's not mysterious. It's growing in love. It's growing in joy. It's growing in peace. Patience. Growing in kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5. And that's what he's talking about here. He gave you his Spirit. And you see evidence of the Spirit. And you go, his Spirit is living in me. Because you know something? Sometimes I am hard to love. You know that. And sometimes you're harder to love. (laughs) But you know, even the hardest one of you, I haven't written you off. I might get aggravated at you. But you know what I think? I gotta love this person. And what that means, I have to be patient, kind, and gentle. That's what it means. And so sometimes I bite my tongue, and sometimes I don't say what I'm thinking. And sometimes I act in a way that's counter of what I'm feeling because it's a loving thing to do. And that's not because I'm a great person. That's the Spirit of God. That's what it is. Spirit of God living in you. And at that time you just want to smack somebody. And you have to be gentle. And you back off. And when you do it, when you actually do it, what what do you think? I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I wish I could take that back. Spirit of God, that's the spirit of God working in you. Because the spirit of Satan doesn't care. He doesn't care if you slap somebody. He doesn't care if you write them off. He doesn't care if you toss them out. That's what he wants you to do. And you fight that over and over. You say, No, I don't. I don't want that. I mean, yeah, there's a feeling in me that wants to do that, but I really don't want to do that. My heart's desire is what? To love. To love the unlovable. That's what I want. And so that's what this verse is saying. He says, we know by experience. And that's what this word know means by experience that he lives in us. And we see the working out of God love in our life. We see it in our lives. And it's not at it. It's not where we want it to be. We wish it was better than it was. But it's God's spirit residing in you. That's calling you over and over. Don't do that. Live that way. Don't go there. Go there. Some of you woke up this morning. You did not want to come here. Yeah. <laughs> Someone just said, "You yeah, got that right." And I've confessed to you this: been mornings I have gotten up on Sunday morning and I did not want to be here, and I got to preach. <laughs> that's okay. We sit there and say, you know, but no. Where, where where does God want me? Where that's the spirit of God working in your life. Let me read you the paraphrase. Those who treasure and guard and hold in the highest esteem his commands of trust and love make their permanent home in him. They reside in him and he has made his home in them. And this is how we know in our experience that he is at home in us and he has communion, fellowship and friendship with us. We experience the working of his spirit in our lives that he gave us. There's a song we sing sometimes. What a fellowship. I want you to think about these words. What a fellowship. I don't know if there's an exclamation point in the song or not. I put it in there. What a joy divine. Leaning on the everlasting arm. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near. Leaning on the everlasting arm. I want to change the words that reflect this passage. What a fellowship. What a joy divine. Living in his everlasting love. I have blessed peace with my Lord in me. Living in his everlasting love. I'm living in Jesus. Living in Jesus. Safe and secure from all alarm. Living in Jesus. Living in Jesus. Living in His everlasting love. Think about that. Sing it. What a fellowship. What a joy. Living in His everlasting love. I have blessed peace with my His everlasting love. You know I'm living in Jesus, living in Jesus, safe and secure from difference, doesn't it? You know, if we live in Jesus, live in His everlasting love, recognize that He's living in me, what's the re- result? Joy. 1 John 1, 4. I walk out of here and I know I'm living in Him and He's living in me. I don't seek to sin. I don't look for sin. I don't sin. 1 John verse 1. And If I'm living in Jesus and, and it's everlasting love, I walk out of here and I know that he has saved me. I know I can be assured of that salvation because I know his love is greater than my sin. His love is greater than my weakness. And I just spread that love to other people. You know, it's got to begin somewhere and someone in just a few minutes is going to begin that walk.